As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Hello and welcome to Unbelievable, the show that aims to get Christians and non-Christians thinking about topics that matter to all of us. I'm Ruth Jackson and today we are discussing C.S. Lewis. On November the 22nd, 1963, Clive Staples Lewis, or Jack as he was known to many of his friends, died in Oxford, England. His death was somewhat overshadowed by the assassination of US President John F. Kennedy on the same day. But today, we want to take some time to reflect on C.S. Lewis's life and ask the question, 60 years after his death, is C.S. Lewis still relevant? And I'm delighted to be joined today by Dan Barker and Carolyn Weber. Dan Barker is a former Christian, pastor turned atheist, who's co-president of the Freedom From Religion Foundation. Dan is an accomplished musician and author of numerous books, including God, the most unpleasant character in all fiction that he's actually spoken about on Unbelievable. So do check out that episode because it's brilliant. Carolyn Weber is an award-winning author, professor and international speaker. Carolyn's first memoir, Surprised by Oxford, recently became a fabulous feature film. And both the book and the film tell her story of coming to faith from scepticism, a journey that in so many ways mirrors C.S. Lewis's own. And I had the great pleasure of having Carolyn on the show recently on the C.S. Lewis podcast to talk a little bit more about her story. Dan and Carolyn, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for the invite. Thank you very much, Ruth. Um, What I'd love to do for the first little bit of this is just to dive into your stories, because you've both got really interesting stories. And in many ways, they kind of go the opposite way. So, Dan, if you're okay, I'd love to start with you. I mean, you spent many, many years as a Christian preacher, evangelist, musician, and you've written at length about your um, your journey from Christianity to atheism in two of your books, Losing Faith and Faith and Godless. But would you be able to share just an abridged version of a little bit of your story for us today? I was raised in a Christian family, a good, loving, great family. And we went to church since I remember, and I loved it. I was one of those kids who just thought I was so special to be in the right family, in the right religion, in the right denomination, in the right country, and in the right period of history. It just felt so good. And uh, I used to preach and believe at the time that God has no grandchildren. You're not, you don't become a Christian just by being born into family. So in my teens, I did make a profession of faith. I confessed my sins and accepted Jesus as my Savior, according to what we thought the Bible said. And then uh, not long after that, when I was 15, I was in a church service hearing a call, the Great Commission, to go to the whole world and preach the gospel. And you know, at that young age, as a young man wondering, what am I going to do with my future? It just all clicked. Yes, I'm going to be a preacher. And I started preaching right then. I I felt, I experienced what I thought at the time, and it was very powerful, uh, this 
almost goosebumpy feeling that I was, this presence was calling me and that I was in the bosom of this love of this father, all this whole thing, you know, different Christians may frame it differently. But for me, it was just a very powerful experience. I started carrying my Bible to school. I started preaching to my high school teachers. I was that guy on campus, you know, with the Bible and with the love of Jesus. And I went on missionary trips. I, I played the piano for gospel groups and Southern gospel groups. And I did some record producing for some gospel singers, including Manuel Bonilla, who still is the leading Spanish-speaking Christian recording artist in the world. We did a whole bunch of albums back then in the 60s and then in the 70s and 80s. And uh, I accepted what I was convinced was the call to the ministry. I got a degree in religion from Azusa Pacific University with what amounted to a, a minor in biblical Greek. I never claimed to be a great scholar, but it was a good training experience. I was ordained to the ministry in 1975, and I was an associate pastor of three different California churches, really believing in, in my theology. I know not all Christians feel the same, but in my theology, we thought Jesus was coming any minute, it could, like a thief in the night. It could be tonight. And so I really felt this love, this drive to win souls. I was a soul winner. I was out on the streets. I was preaching. I, was, I stood on park benches. We, we went into Mexico and we, you know, we took over the whole park and we're preaching to people. It was, it was glorious. It was a great, a great experience besides that, besides the ministry, also the intercultural experience of just traveling as a missionary. And uh, I, um, became a traveling evangelist after that third church sent me out as a sort of a, a U.S. missionary. For eight years, I traveled from church to church preaching, hoping that Jesus would delay his return one more day so that I could win one more soul for the kingdom. <clears throat> and so I knew a lot about the Bible and, and theology, but I wasn't so deep into it. I was more like a soul winner. I wasn't like some expository pastor. <clears throat> um, and to make a very, very long story short, uh, in my early 30s, after 19 years of preaching, really, because I started preaching when I was 15, I, um, I started reading other things besides what I had been reading before. And, uh, you know, before, as you say, I had read C.S. Lewis, uh, some of his books, of course, back then, which made a, a powerful impact on me as a Christian at the time. Uh, but I went through a period of reevaluation, and part of that was due to the fact that the musicals that I had published as a Christian songwriter, uh, one of them was a best-selling musical by Amanda Music, and I worked also with Word Records. Um, and then I also wrote some Bible school curriculums for a group called Gospel Light Publications, which was for like vacation Bible school. Uh, I got invitations to preach and perform, not just by the extreme right-wing born-again fundamentalist churches that I was a part of, I was getting invited by a broader cross-section of Christianity than I was used to. So I came into contact with pastors from across this whole spectrum, learning there is no one Christianity. There's, there's probably as many Christianities as there are Christians. There's all these different groups, and they're all splits off of something else, and they all are very confident about what they believe. And I met a whole bunch of those pastors, you know, more conservative, more moderate types, more, more liberal types, and many of them had performed my musicals. And they were more interested in that than, than in our theology. I remember one church, one pastor told me that he had some members of his church who did not think Adam and, I, Adam and Eve were real people. And I thought, what? And you let them be members? How can you do that? 
they, you know, either the Bible is truth or it isn't. It's either true or it's a lie. And if these people dis, disbelieve God, how can they be Christians? That's how I was thinking back then in that simplistic, uh, what do you call it, absolutistic, black and white binary thinking that a lot of fundamentalists have. Not all Christians are like that. We know that. There, there are many more subtle, more broader types of Christians. But for me to move from here, you don't, you don't just start over here and then one day wake up and go, oh, silly me, there's no God. Ha, 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 ha. It, it took a process of four or five years of meeting people, talking with people, thinking, praying, reading the Bible, and gradually my theology migrated, not to atheism, but to a different type of Christianity, if you know what I mean. Most of my process happened within Christianity. It wasn't like anger at God or, or you know, bitterness. I, I loved my Christian life. And, and as I moved a little, little bit more and more and more this way, this way, and this way, I finally realized, you know, there's, it's, it's like drawing this line of what's essential and what isn't, you know. And different denominations have this big, long list of what is essential belief. And, of course, C.S. Lewis talked about what is mere Christianity. What is that mere Christianity? If you pull away the layers of the onion. What is at the middle there? I kept peeling, I kept peeling, and I found out there is nothing in the middle. I learned at the end that what I was preaching is simply not true on historical grounds, on, uh, on textual grounds, on scientific grounds, on moral grounds as well, what the Bible teaches. And I learned that there really is no coherent definition of a God. Everybody seems to think to know what that thing is, but there's no coherent definition. There's no agreement among believers about the nature of this God or his moral principles. There's no good evidence for this God. Yeah, there's evidence, but is it good evidence? There's no good argument for a God. And in the 140 debates I've done since that time, I still haven't heard a good argument for a God. There's a lot of arguments that might resonate with a believer. But if you're outside and you're hearing those arguments, they don't carry the same weight. So, and then there's no good reply to the problem of suffering or what, what used to be called the problem of evil. And, and of course, books like the Bible and other religious texts turn out to be not very reliable. Uh, and in fact, sometimes internally contradictory. They, be, they become like a moral grab bag and all these different denominations can pick which one they want. Uh, which is not to say that Christians are bad people. Most of them have good motives, and I think most Christians really are basically good, decent people, most of them, except for the extreme nutcases, you know. Um, and then finally I learned that there's no real need to believe in a God. I learned that there are millions, in, in this country, tens of millions of good people who live happy, moral, productive, meaningful, joyful lives without believing in this being or supernatural world, and it, there's nothing to be gained from it unless you're afraid of hell, which is kind of silly when you think about it. What kind of a moral philosophy is based on a threat, you know, a threat of hell? Uh, and unless you're really, you're really afraid of heaven and hell, missing that. Or if your life is so dry that you need some kind of cosmic love to give your life meaning in some way. And most of the atheists I know don't feel that need. So there's no real need for that belief anyway, which is not really an argument against God, but it is, it's a good argument for not needing to take it too seriously. So at the end of that period of time, and I'm making this long story really, really short, I realized, hey, what does that make me? I didn't even know what that made me until later. I thought, well, I guess if, I, if you're not a theist, you're an atheist. And so that's what I became at the time. And since then, uh, I have to say, like many of my former, 
I know there's at least 1,200 members of the Clergy Project who used to be clergy who are now atheists and agnostics. That life is much, much better as a non-believer, and there's good reasons why. Um, Dan, there's a line in your book, Godless, where you say, the motivation that drove me into the pulpit is the same one that drove me out. I was a minister because I wanted to know and speak the truth, and I'm an atheist for the same reason. Yeah. Um, I mean, Carolyn, what do you think? Uh, have you got anything you'd want to say to Dan's story? And I guess this kind of, it was seeking truth that drew Dan away. Obviously, we'll hear a little bit more about your story because it was kind of the opposite. It was your seeking truth that drew you to Christianity. But what what are your kind of initial thoughts as, as you heard Dan speak just there? Mm. I really appreciate you sharing that, Dan. It was really, really interesting um, and, uh, and really um, articulate and really courageous, you know, too, to share that in a sense because we so often, I think, feel that we're stepping into Christian presumptions and things as well. And also for you to evaluate where you were at from that time of being very young, too. Um, I guess one of my first questions would be then you said that, you know, folks as, then that feel that their lives are now better without faith or without God. Um, could, I wondered if you could speak a little more to that. What what would have replaced that? Or do you believe there needs to be a replacement? Or what would be uh, the purpose then that would be substituted there or attractive in its place or why they felt it was better? Well, if you learn that it's not true, it's similar to having an illness. You're, you're carrying something with you that's not true. And would you ask, what would you replace your illness with? I mean, you wouldn't ask that. You'd just be glad that it's gone, right? And then you can go on and live your life. But morally, of course, it's much superior to base moral judgments on actual harm, intention and harm in the real world, rather than on the orders or the dictates of some something supernatural. It's very dangerous to base your life and your moral structure on so, some teachings of a so-called ancient holy book, um, because in a sense, you are not thinking for yourself. You are surrendering your thoughts. And there's a whole lot of Christian hymns that talk about that. I surrender, Lord. I am your servant. You are my master. This whole structure of a Lord up here and we are down here. If you look at the postures of prayer, they are the same postures of slavery. The hands are shackled. The head is bowed. The knees are bent. And you're showing how little you are before this great Lord who's going to do all your thinking for you. That's dangerous. And most of us non-believers think, Life is much more navigable using the simple tools of reason and kindness and common sense. And in my case, a moral philosophy based on what I call the harm principle, which is kind of like utilitarianism, but not really. In any event, acting with the intention of minimizing harm, that's a clear principle. Whereas the moral principles of the Bible are not clear. You, you take any issue of the day, take any moral issue that we're struggling with right now, it could be birth control or abortion rights, or it could be the war, it could be gun control, uh, it could be the environment. I mean, you, there's a hundred things you could name. You will find good, devout, beautiful Christian people on both sides of those issues. And they will use their Bible and their theology to justify it. You know that. There are, there are Catholics for choice and there are Catholics against it. So the Bible itself and the teachings of Christianity turn out not to be a good specific moral guide. It's much more clear to use reason with 
the intention of minimizing real harm in the real world, which is something measurable. That's much better and, 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 and much clearer. It doesn't mean you're always going to solve the problems right, but at least we have a, a good moral compass. And Carolyn, we're, we're going to talk a little bit about reason later because Lewis clearly thought that they didn't need to be at odds faith and reason. But I'd love to just delve a little bit into your story because in many ways, your story is kind of the opposite of Dan's and your story slightly echoes, I think, C.S. Lewis's own trajectory from atheism to theism while studying at Oxford University. Like Dan, you've sort of written about your journey in a book um, in Surprise by Oxford. But again, would you mind just giving us a little brief summary of some of your story and I guess, you know, some of the reasons that sort of led you to Christianity? Because you were also, as we said, pursuing the truth in the way that Dan was. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think we're both truth seekers in that sense and very um, opposite story in this in a way. I mean, I had I came from a very loving home, too, uh, but um, but broken as well. Um, I mean, I don't think those two are antithetical either. But uh, when when I was about seven or eight, my father was a self-made man. I came from immigrant background and he lost his business um and had been very affluent and ended up having um, a mental breakdown as a result. And my mother was raising us as a single mom. So my father was in and out of our lives. I was kind of from a, a mid-sized town um, in Canada, uh, not particularly, uh, you know, well off and middle class. And um, But as my mom struggled to raise us, uh, we were, of course, more poor in a sense. Um, and eventually, my father came in and out of our lives in volatile ways. Um, my mom was very loving and and very uh, artistic and very intelligent, as was my dad in his own ways too. But um, she was uh, she drank heavily um, in order to, um, I think, deal with her the things that she was dealing with. And I would have. I probably would have drank more. <laughs> so, um, so I was raising my, helping to raise my, my sibling and my um, participate financially supporting our family. There was a lot of financial duress. And to make a long story short on my end, I just, I, I had sort of been exposed perhaps to a loose Catholicism, European Catholicism as a child from my grandparents. I was very close to my grandmother. Um, but attended things in mass in Latin, didn't really understand. Uh, my mom would have been probably loosely Catholic with some guidelines there, but really by the time I was entering into my teens, um, I didn't have any kind of religious framework at all. I'm a perfect example of somebody who went through the public school system without really cracking open a Bible. Um, reading the Bible as, as I needed to, um, I, I won scholarships and things like that throughout the way. Uh, to pursue literary studies and had to read it as I needed to, to understand illusions and things. But um, I didn't really, uh, I, I, I really believed in self-sufficiency and personal responsibility and pulling oneself up by their bootstraps and making my own way. And I certainly wasn't going to um, believe in the crux of religion uh, or believe in an eternal father when your earthly one is not dependable. Um, and and yet I wouldn't have defined myself as, as atheist. I, 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 by my teens, I, I defined myself basically as agnostic because I couldn't disprove God either. So um, I wasn't quite sure which way. And I was probably, in a sense, a fence sitter 
Uh, although to some degree, I had just really never been asked the question um, who Jesus was. For me, my I would say, and even who God was, I would say also a great example, particularly of sort of our mainstream society of somebody whose idea of Jesus was a big hair TV evangelist who took your money. Um, I made fun of people exactly like yourself in your childhood. <laughs> um, I thought uh, things like end times and that were ridiculous and spiritual warfare is not really pleasant in Canadian conversation. And there, there wasn't really any um, reason to land there. And what had happened is uh, I only knew, I, I knew C.S. Lewis as a child through the Narnia Chronicles. I hadn't really known him in any other way, shape or form. But as I arrived at Oxford University on a Commonwealth scholarship for my graduate work, I was studying world religions for my MPhil at the time and um, various uh, theologies around the world as they were dovetailing into the 19th century um, and into British and European romanticism. And, uh, and I just was, I was really interested in progress of the soul theories. And I, so I was reading widely in that sense, but I began to meet Christians and I met Christians from all over the world um, at Oxford in ways that I didn't anticipate. I had people start to ask me these questions. I'd always been very busy surviving, um, working hard and multiple jobs and keeping my grades up and that sort of thing. And, and I never actually had been asked thoroughly and thoughtfully who God was to me. Uh, and I started to examine that. Um, and as I did, I was drawn more and more towards Christianity. Uh, partly, Lewis was influential in that way, but Actually, first and foremost, it was the example of thoughtful Christians, people I met who were really living their faith um, meaningfully and kindly and um, thoughtfully. Uh, to me, reason and faith seemed antithetical and necessarily antithetical. And uh, paradox to me had to be a contradiction, not an apparent one. And um, and yet the more conversations I had, and of course these people were human too, and, uh, but the more this was becoming incredibly inconvenient. <laughs> and so I finally decided to read the Bible for myself, cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation, um, because I knew lots of people who had a Darwin fish on the back of their car and had never cracked open the Bible for themselves. And that's not, how I operated and how I did in my studies. And um, and when I really, really read Genesis carefully, it again was also horrendously inconvenient because it really made sense. Um, sin made sense. Pride made sense. Uh, God is other and the preference of other made sense. And that was really annoying. <laughs> I was prepared for it to not make sense and to use the Bible as fodder for my argument against my Christian friends and um, for Christians in general, um, who as a category can be their own worst enemy. And uh, and so um, I ended up, as I read it through, realized that Genesis really, really in fascinating ways um, rolled out to Revelation and like Goethe says, I have not the imagination for reality, and I actually found it very compelling um, 
as a human story. And, um, and of course, there are things that are weird. And of course, there are things that are bizarre. Um, but those are everywhere. It offered a coherent narrative. Uh, Christianity itself offered a coherent narrative. There are things about God that we can know. And there are things about God that are unknowable. Um, I didn't find that to deny his existence. And um, I was also a feminist. I still am in many ways in various shades and things as well. Um, but Jesus was here historically. Um, we have documentation of that. Um, something happened. Um, but what fascinated me too was the power of story that um, the Bible had something else going on underneath it. And it was, I ended up agreeing with someone like Bonhoeffer that the Bible is unlike any other text. And I'm not saying that I open it and, you know, I was very, very hesitant and very um, cynical or skeptical towards a, a holy Bible. Um, but uh, there was something else that was happening in the reading. And um, I really began to understand and, and seek to understand further how we are humanetical thinkers, how we are looking for various levels of truth beneath things that either the surface is the surface and there's nothing else beneath it or above, or there is. And, uh, and there might be multiple things happening at the same time, some of which we can see, some of which we cannot. And I couldn't deny the more I read the Bible as, as a lover of reading, the more I realized what's going on um, in my own heart and in my own mind, but also that both made sense and, um, and also invited um, beyond that. And so I eventually became a Christian uh, a few years later. So for me, it was I became a Christian as a result of what I read too. <laughs> we have to be careful what we read. <laughs> I want to dive a little bit more into you know the title of your autobiography, "Surprised by Oxford," and in mm -hmm. some ways that kind of the the um, the, the synergy with this was surprised by joy and sort of Lewis's search for joy, but also the fact that you were in many ways a reluctant com convert in the way that um, Lewis was. And, and Dan, I'd also love to hear your response. But we are going to have to go to a little quick break here. Um, I'm here with Dan Barker and Cameron. Weber, and we would love to hear your thoughts as well about C.S. Lewis. Do drop us an email, unbelievable at premier.org.uk, or get in touch via social media at Unbelievable FE for X, formerly known as Twitter, or Premier Unbelievable on Facebook. And we'll be back in just a moment to carry on this discussion. Welcome back to the second part of our discussion with Dan Barker and Carolyn Weber. And just a quick reminder that you can find out more about C.S. Lewis through one of our other shows, the C.S. Lewis Podcast. Carolyn, just before the break, we were talking a bit about your story and you, like Lewis, were somewhat reluctant to become a Christian, weren't you? I mean, obviously, I'm surprised by Joy Lewis talks about being the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. Is, is that sort of how you felt when you became a Christian? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> I actually felt that way, kicking and screaming prior to the actual sort of handing my life over. But um what I love about Lewis's description is he says the after effect of looking back at that and realizing that a God that would still accept someone on those terms, right? Still the pride in that sort of realization. Um, but 
I think ultimately for me, it was really the city of God, the city of man bumping up against each other. And in that there was something more I wanted and wanted in the double-edged sword sense of both lacking and wanting and needing, desiring. And, and so, um, I, I didn't read Lewis. I didn't know about Surprised by Joy to the same extent at all until later. So I, I eventually read more of his works later, but I really resonated with the fact that here I am an academic, here I am from really a background of predominantly um, unbelievers or, or people who also think of themselves perhaps culturally as Christian, but because they are good or they're nice. Uh, and, uh, and this was going to be, um, again, just very inconvenient. And, uh, and so I think that's more of where my sort of kicking and screaming came from, but there was also an element of help me in my unbelief. And even that was in the Bible. I mean, I, what I was amazed by is there's something for everyone in the Bible, every single facet of ourselves, as well as different people. So within and without, and that was one of the lowliest of prayers. And I still got to this point, much like Sheldon Vanock, and I had read A Severe Mercy and um, had been struck by that. That was actually my first introduction to Lewis and um, out of the Narnia Chronicles, older, and uh, where he talked about not being able eventually for him being able to reject who Jesus was. It was more of a falling back than a leaping forward. And I think that's really in a sense, the place that I was at. And I wouldn't have described it as very comfortable. <laughs> um, and, and I guess the other sort of clear mirroring of some of Lewis's story was was that sort of the search for joy, which is which is what he calls it. And, um, you know, you say in Surprised by Oxford, your book, joy is the Christian secret weapon. No one else has it in such abundance. And I guess in many ways that kind of mimics a lot of what Lewis says in his work. So in The Great Divorce, he says, here is joy that cannot be shaken. Um, in Surprised by Joy, he says, I sometimes wonder whether all pleasures are not substitutes for joy. So you, you kind of see see this this reoccurring theme of, of searching for joy but was that something that was true in your story as well Carolyn? Well I think it was the longing and that um, I mean I did see a joy in Christians and it was different than happiness right um, which is circumstantial and it was different than pleasure which you know is weird or gross so there is a sense in which uh, or physical you know it was um when he talked about all joy reminds, there was this way in which, uh, see, because he, he borrowed that title from Wordsworth. And um, I was, you know, a romanticist at the time. That was my area of study. And um, Surprised by Joy is a poem by Wordsworth in which actually he experiences joy in the face of great grief, in the, in the face of loss. He's experienced something beautiful for a moment or deeply that, that creates this longing in himself. And he turns to share it with somebody and realizes that that tomb is empty and it will always be empty. And um, and I think for Lewis to evoke that title is really interesting because it, it not only that sense of something that we have lost and yet we are longing for pointing us to something else, all those desires pointing to a greater desire, but also um, that even something like grief or loss, pain, suffering, an empty tomb would be a source for something in which we are actually both painfully and, and joyfully feeling um, and that that there was something longing we all long for uh, that I felt to be really common to the human condition, what it meant to be human and that I felt to myself as well.
Dan, just before we delve specifically into some of Lewis's thoughts and ideas, is there anything that you sort of initially would want to respond to or thoughts you have about Carolyn's story? Well, she mentioned early on at Oxford that she met some Christians who were living out their faith. And I think I understand what she's saying, because I would have said it the same way. Um, I guess she means things like kindness and, and compassion and charity and goodness, those kinds of things, very positive things. And I think many or maybe most Christians are like that. But I don't think that is quantitatively or even qualitatively different or better from the values and the joy and the experiences that non-believers have. And I know that from personal experience. If if joy is your measure, then what's life all about? Is life just being about joy? In my case, joy was not the measure. I mean, joy is great. We all want to be joyful. We all want to have that. In fact, there's. I just wrote a song for the Godless Gospel Group called Joy to the World. There is no God, no heaven or hell. And it's true joy. It's real joy. And if you listen to that concert, you'll feel it. I mean, that music, it just makes you. So I'm not denying that Christians like Carolyn feel that joy and it's wonderful. And I used to feel it and preach it too. But it, it, it's not different. It's not better. It's not more lofty. It's not more special than the joy and the compassion and the feelings that we non-believers or, or Hindus or Muslims or Native American spiritualists all feel. If you look at most of the religions, they all talk about love and joy and peace, right? Like, wow, that's so special. But they all say it. Like they're offering the world something really special. Our religion talks about peace and love and joy. Well, great. We all love that. But um, I don't think it makes any difference. I don't think the the joy that Carolyn is experiencing, as real as it is, and I'm not knocking it because it's meaningful to you, it's not better. It's not more powerful. It's not more meaningful. It's not more sublime than the joy that comes from being in touch with reason and for me, joy is not the measure. Truth is the measure. Whether it's true or not is the main question. And it's, it seems fascinating to me, and this is, this is I've been thinking about this for years, that two people, two smart people like me and Carolyn, and you too, Ruth, you're probably the smartest of the three, but <laughs> probably <laughs> we, can, we can both pick up the same Bible and read it with an open, honest, searching heart. Really, we can do that. What does it say? What does it mean to me? And if we're not allowed to do that, then what good is the book, right? I mean, it's supposed to be this word of God to a human race. And so I should be able to pick it up and read it. And yet look at the different conclusions we come to when we read that book. And when we see, for example, the misogyny and, you know, there's a little bit of joy in the Bible. There's not much joy in the Bible. Most of it is commands and threats. If you read the Old Testament, it's threats and curses. You know, the covenant that God made with his chosen people has what, maybe 10 verses of here's the blessings that I'm going to give you. But if you don't follow my orders, there's like three times as many curses and pestilences and plagues visited upon your children and your children to the next generation. It's a very brutal, bombastic, jealous, uh, dictatorial type of a structure. When I read it, that's what I see. And it's amazing that Carolyn would read it and not see that. And so what does that tell us? It's telling us something about our disposition, isn't it? It's telling us about mm -hmm. what we are bringing to it as we read it. And I've debated a number mm -hmm. of Christians, good people, who read the Bible and they don't actually see the brutality. Because in their mm -hmm. minds, it's not there. It's love and it's joy. And it's the, it's the peace that passes understanding that Jesus... That's what they see because that's what they're bringing to it. So... Um, 
joy is great and 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 i don't think christian joy is any better or any more special than the joy that many of the rest of us have in this life and if that were the measure then we come out even it just comes out flat doesn't it Karen, and how would you respond to that? That that sense which Dan says that joy is not the measure, truth is. Because for you, truth mm. was really important. It, actually, truth wasn't was it? the measure for me. I actually didn't feel joy reading the Bible, um, and I wasn't. I I didn't say that I was moved by Christians' joy. Um, that's not actually. I I I was moved by or intrigued by something they had or some way that they lived that was different. So it was most, actually, I would have to say agape or love. And what I mean by that is not the empty bumper sticker kind of love that, you know, we just throw around the empty word, but, um, and not the fair weather love where I love you when I'm in the mood, but a commandment to love. And, uh, and that's why I eventually became a follower of Christ, uh, who is, and a follower of the New Testament, in a sense, which of course builds on the old, but is uh, is an atonement and redemption of the old. So there's um, that commandment to love and to love others um, as I love myself was actually really what spoke to me the most. And not that we do that perfectly. It was joy that was a reminder. Um, it was the fleeting sense of joy, something that I couldn't quite grasp that made me realize or feel or recognize he gave Lewis, for example, gave me a language for that longing. Um, but, uh, but that was not the compulsion of the Bible, nor of Christians, the primary one at all. That was an internal gauge of, 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 a, of a remembrance of something that I had not yet experienced, but had, um, a sense that it was there or towards which I was moving or that was compelling in the sense of being reminded rather than instructed. Um, but, but love is where uh, the line is in the sand. And I, I guess Lewis as well, you know, for him, truth was a really important part of it, it particularly if, it, you know, in some ways the the account of him kneeling on the floor, the most reluctant and um, dejected convent in all England is, is that he's sort of believing despite wanting to, he's, you know, it's truth as a like over and above what he wants to be true. It's so true despite his, his, yeah, his longing for it. And he says this in um, Mere Christianity, my faith is based on reason. The battle is between my faith and reason on one side and my emotion and imagination on the other. Dan, I'd love to know what you think of that, that he he believes that his faith is based on reason. And I get the sense that you might perhaps pit faith and reason against each other in, in a way that C.S. Lewis doesn't. He thinks that the two go together, that his faith is actually informed by his rational decisions. Well, I used to preach that my faith was based on reason, but it's not. Faith is not reasonable. You can have faith in anything you want as long as you admit it. But... If you were, use words like truth, what do you mean by that? What does the word truth even mean? And to me, and I think to many, many philosophers and others, truth is simply the degree with which a statement corresponds with reality. And you can't just pick and choose some reality and then say, that's my truth, because that's what some ancient Israelite prophet said or some, some you know, early Christian thinker said, that's my truth. 
How do you know that it's true? How would C.S. Lewis even know that what words of the Bible say are true unless he is already predisposed to the acceptance of, an, of a transcendental world, as, as you will? And I know in mere Christianity, he tries to make a case um, based on what he calls the moral law, that there is some kind of a back world behind all of us. And, and I admire him for trying to do that. He does it very well, but he's wrong. Um, he's got things totally upside down. So, um, you, you know, if you, if you pick a framework of truth and then you use that as your measure, you can say anything's reasonable. It's reasonable according to this measure that I picked. When I was reading the Bhagavad Gita and I was reading about Arjuna and Krishna and all of those stories in there, you could see that that author was convinced of the truth of Shiva and Krishna and the beautiful literature, by the way, amazing writing. Uh, the, the story of the battle that's there in the Bhagavad Gita. I mean, I, I mean, philosophically and, and, you know, epistemologically, it's ludicrous. The whole story is ludicrous, just like the Old Testament stories are ludicrous. They didn't happen. They, they, were, they were stories that the writers believed happened. But, but in a literary sense, they're quite moving. They're telling us something about human nature at the time, the way people believed. So Lewis was making a, a good stab at trying to connect reason with what he thought was the truth, but he was wrong. Carolyn, do you have any thoughts on, on that? And, and I guess, do you have any thoughts on, on some of his arguments in Mere Christianity that Dan's alluded to there? Mm. Well, I think that idea of a moral or natural law, right, is in a sense that there is um, some universal sense in which we are attracted to what seems wrong. I mean, um, which would be at the roots of something like rights or judgment um, or deciding what is good or bad, um, you know, whether to murder or not, whether to have any kind of rights in our society or not, do have those Judean Christian roots. Um, and, uh, and that there seems to be, um, I don't think faith and reason are antithetical at all. Uh, and that um, really, in a sense, everything is taken by faith. And we're at a point in our culture today where we can say anything we would want and declare that a truth, whether as ridiculous or, you know, as unsupported as it might be in every single way. So that's never solved anything. All those wars just shift and change, but they remain the same. But I, I thought, you know, when you were talking about myths and things, Dan, you know, I think that's what Lewis was drawing on is that myths are stories, but they're stories in the sense that are true. They point to truths within ourselves. They point to things that we know um, from being within our human identities, being within our human experiences. Um, and so, sure, you know, are they literal? Are there is there wiggle room in there? Are we going to hair split on all what all the different stories and symbols mean? Um, is that really our cross to die on? I'm not sure. But when we, you know, read the story of something like Adam and Eve, and, and we look at the notion of sin, that makes great sense, I think, um, to how we operate. When um, when we look at how, um, you know, we can make uh, draw on having rights to any rights at all seems to suggest that uh, we um, we crave and desire and demand dignity. Um, where does that concept come from? If it only comes um, relatively from within you and I depend on how we feel, 
uh, reason, you know, although it's the viceroy in me and I should defend, is not everything. I don't think uh, faith is not math. Um, and it doesn't mean that it can't include that. Uh, but I think reason is uh, is actually quite limited um, by things that we can't control. Um, by, you know, it's as limited as your cough. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you are uh, feeling well or whatnot, right, you know, then it'll function. But there's also things in which um, we have to have faith and reason, too. Dan, I'd love to um, hear your response to Carolyn, but also just to throw in another C.S. Lewis quote, which is quite a famous quote that's often quoted from mere Christianity, that my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. And I suppose that's kind of what Carolyn, Carolyn was saying there, that, that actually, you know, where do we even get this kind of reference point for right or wrong if it's not just within ourselves and Lewis is obviously drawing on something outside of himself and saying that's our benchmark and and that's how we know that a straight line is a straight line a crooked line is a crooked line what what are your thoughts on that Dan yeah well Lewis was really brilliant at drawing those analogies and uh, I admire that I think he had a great talent for writing for making complex issues clear uh, I think he was wrong you know I think the writer of the Bhagavad Gita was talented you know and I think the Many many parts of the Quran are, are talented. A lot of it is is nonsensical. But um, so morality, you know, Lewis in, in Mere Christianity makes this argument that there is a moral law or a natural law or what did you call it, the human law? It seems to transcend because we all we all have reference. We know that's right and that's wrong. But you don't need that for, to have a good moral system. You don't need that at all. And in fact, many people function in life without thinking that there needs to be something behind it all. When you think about how we evolved, the instincts we have, and he wrote about instincts. Uh, and I think he wrote correctly that instincts can be good or bad, depending on how they're used. And there's, there, there's no one right one or not. Uh, many of the instincts that we have turn out to be useful in the environment in which we evolve. But sometimes the the environment has changed and those same instincts are no longer good anymore. I remember when I was in the Detroit airport, uh, this was like in the late 80s, I was flying to be on the Phil Donahue show, changing planes in um, in Detroit. And in the, in the line going to another gate, this was before 9-11, there was a young couple that they had this little baby carrier up on top of the luggage on top of this cart about, you know, this high off the ground. And I wasn't paying any attention, but the corner of my eye, the father must have walked away. The corner of my eye saw that baby thing start to roll off the luggage to fall down to the hard floor. And I saw myself with no thought, with mo no moral deliberation, with no thinking about how can I show the world that I'm a good Christian or what's the right thing to do. I saw myself stretching my arm across grabbing that thing and catching it just in time to keep it from falling totally off. And then the mother grabbed it about a second later. She would have been too late. And we were both holding on to this thing. My heart was kind of pounding and that was scary. It was like, whoa, you know, um, that was instinct. That was not judgment. That was not planned. That was not calculated. And I think it's because our ancestors 
who were less likely to keep babies from falling were less likely to pass that genetic information down to us. That's, that's a pretty basic scientific idea, right? So many of our moral actions are instinctive, and we should be glad for that. Sometimes instinct is wrong, but you don't need something behind it all. If morality, and I don't know if Lewis actually gave a formal definition of, mor of morality itself. The Bible never does. The Bible doesn't even have the word moral or morality. The Bible just reduces to obeying God. But if morality um, means, and this is what I think it means, acting in such a way that you're trying to minimize harm in the real world. If that's what we mean by morality, and I think it is, we want a world with less harm, you know, with, with more freedom and, and less threats, less danger. If that's what morality means, that I'm acting in such a way, well, that instinct was going towards that, right? But if you have the time to think about it, you can use reason and you should use reason. We don't always have the time, which is why sometimes quick instincts are good. So what reason would say is you should base your actions on the consequences that either cause more or less actual harm in the real world. That's what we mean by morality, in which case moral values are not objective things. They're not some big law out there around us. Moral values are values and judgments in the human brain that can be objectively justified by reference to reality. And that's what truth means. A statement has a reference to reality. So we can, we can make moral judgments. We, we, we can't always make the right decision because we don't always have enough information, right? If we had more information, we would act better. But at least if your intention is to act with the idea of minimizing real harm in the real world, you're a moral person, and that's good for society, it's good for the tribe, it's good for the individual, it's good for the family, it's good for all of us without some spooky reference to something behind all of that. So I think Lewis failed to see that there can be very useful, plausible, naturalistic moral philosophies that don't require us to transcend the natural universe. We are going to need to go to a quick break, but Carolyn, do you just have a quick response to that? I could sort of see you itching to say no, something in response. I, no, of course, I think that you use analogy very well for your argument and um, <laughs> and an illustration. But um, and that's I do think when we can act quickly, sometimes, of course, instinct, that might be an argument as well, that that's been wired in us by a designer to help us survive. But when we do have time to think or we're trying to weigh what harm is, are, are, is our reason sufficient? If you reached to grab that child falling from a high space, would you also reach to save the child that has not yet been born? And how do we weigh those kind of decisions and those kind of um, moral implications? And how do we measure harm to whom and to what across what measures? Those are the kind of questions that are not instinctual. Can I reply quickly? Of course you can. Go for it. <laughs> Whatever harm is, it is natural. And you can think of a thousand different things that harm are, disease or threats or natural disasters or oppression or rape or whatever, violence. Whatever it is, it's natural. And being natural, then it, it can be measured. It can have a metric. You can see what harm would be more or what would be less. You can use reason at least to make a good attempt at, at determining the consequences of your action. You can do that. You can't always be perfect, but that's much better than following the commands of some deity in a holy book. I don't think we can see or see the repercussions of our harm, and that's a large, a large compulsion behind something like the Christian. 
worldview is um, why we have repentance and why we have um, obedience and sometimes in things that we cannot see um, because we can't see the repercussions of them or the depths of those repercussions in our limited view at the moment. This is fascinating stuff and I really don't want to stop, but we do have to take a quick break. But we'll be hearing more from Dan Barker and Carolyn Webber very shortly. We'd also love to know what you think. Drop us an email, unbelievable at premier.org.uk. Plus, if you want exclusive access to our upcoming big conversation with US radio host Ben Shapiro and the wonderful popular YouTuber Alex O'Connor discussing whether religion is good or bad for society, then do sign up at thebigconversation.show and you can watch their discussion a whole week early pretty much universally social science suggests that many of the institutions that we hold dear that shape us that provide us social support a huge amount of this used to happen anyway inside of these traditional religious structures and there really has been nothing to replace it it's amazing how quickly ostensible deontologists transform before our very eyes into utilitarians on this question we're talking about what the self is here i mean atheists believe in the self Everybody believes in the well, self. Well, no, that's not, I mean, that, that, that I, I find difficult to believe. Why, why would an atheist believe in the self? The self is a series of non-deciding mechanisms. The arguments against God are, are fairly compelling, and I think the arguments against atheism are fairly compelling. The difference is that most people who believe in God have expressed doubts, and a lot of people who are atheists tend to be more religious in this way than many of the people who are God-believers. If people listening agree with me that free will in fact doesn't exist, and simultaneously agree with you that free will is somehow necessary for the upkeep of civilization, then I would simply ask them to consider who's relying on the delusion here. This show does seem to have an extraordinary capacity for putting me face to face with people that I've been talking smack about online. So <laughs> thanks again. For more debates, updates and bonus content, sign up now at thebigconversation.show. Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask Anti Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. That's premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. Thank you. Welcome back to the final part of Unbelievable, looking at whether 60 years after his death, C.S. Lewis is still relevant today. I did say that I would love to hear a little bit um, more about your stories. So, Dan, I know you first encountered C.S. Lewis as a Christian. I'd love to know, did your opinion of Lewis change sort of as your journey towards atheism started? I mean, what did you begin to think of Lewis the more you read and the more you sort of began to start towards atheism? 
Well, yes, my opinion did change, but it wasn't like I had him at the front of my mind through all of that, <laughs> you know. Um, it was only years later thinking back, oh, yeah, I used to read Lewis, so, you know. Um, I don't I don't think he was a major influence in my Christian life. He was a, a nice supplement, I would suppose it would be. Um, I read, um, uh, of course, Mere Christianity, and then uh, The Great Divorce, which I thought was was brilliant writing. I thought it was the way he tells those stories, you know. Uh, the screw, screw tape letters were kind of screwy, but uh, uh, <laughs> uh, but he's trying to make a point, you know, and it's it's all literature, it's all analogy. And I did read, uh, I think I read all the Narnia books um, as a believer. And it's interesting because as a believer, when I was reading them, the the Christian allusions did not jump out at me. You know, you know, you hear people say they read Aslan was a figure or a type of Christ. None of that happened. I was just reading it for the story. You know, I, this is a fun story. This is great. And it was only later when I heard people trying to analyze, and I don't know if, if this happens a lot in literature, what does this actually really mean? Uh, perhaps Lewis did have in the back of his mind some, I don't know, proselytizing attempt or maybe just illustrative attempt. Uh, but at the time as a Christian, I just read them and I enjoyed reading them just for the uh, you know, just for the fun of reading, because reading reading is great. Uh, years later, of course, coming as an atheist, uh, as a joyful and happy and moral atheist, um, and, and they're not all that way. I know some I know some jerks who are atheists, but I know some jerks who are Christians. <laughs> but years later, <laughs> <Me> too. <laughs> yeah, there's did, all sorts every, of jerks. <laughs> every group has its fringes in it, uh, and you can't you can't paint. All Christians are all atheists with the same brush. You can't do that. Um, we all have kind of different backgrounds and different motivations and different personalities. Uh, who knows where that came from? We, we we just interviewed Robert Sapolsky, who wrote the book Determined, where he thinks there's no such thing as free will. And, of course, it was all predetermined by our genetics and our past and our cultures and all that. And later years reading C.S. Lewis, I read back to it again and again appreciated his writing. Because I'm a writer. I'm, I'm working on my 11th book right now. And I, I'm really jealous of his writing, the way he put his words together, the way he was able to summarize, the way he was somewhat self-deprecating. You know what I mean? He wasn't like being some big preacher type. And uh, he was more accessible, I think, to the average reader than a lot of these so-called know-it-alls who, you know, who preach at you. But as I was saying earlier, I don't think his moral argument really carries much weight at all it looks like it looks like he's trying to uh reverse engineer because he has in mind that there's this god right i don't think he came to his belief in god as a result of contemplating moral principles i think he was using that as a way to say well here's a way we can get to god because i don't see that i don't see that there's a universal moral law that all humans share or a whole or a universal ought I think there are conditional oughts. I think we can say, unlike Lewis, I think we can say that if we wish to have a world or a situation or a life that has minimal amount of harm in it, if that's what we want, then we ought to do these things. It's conditional. If you wish that, then. And if you don't, what about the psychopaths in the world? 4% of humans are psychopathic. They don't have that wish. Are they to be our moral guides? And some, sometimes they are. Sometimes they run our banks and sometimes they run our governments. Uh, they have no empathy. They have none of that. They can't be taught empathy. 
there's something broken in their brains and they can't even learn it. They can pretend it. So anyway, reading Lewis in later life, I think, well, that was nice. I think, I think we can say that C.S. Lewis is still relevant to Christians, Christians who are within the fold, who want to be, I don't know, affirmed or comforted, or they want some good reading. And since I think most Christians are good people, most Christians have good motives, they want to do the right thing. My mom even said that. She was raised as a Christian because she wanted to do the right thing. She wanted to live a life that was right and moral and good. She later became an atheist after I did. And then she said, you know what? It's so great because I don't have to hate anymore. I don't have to hate homosexuals. I don't have to hate uh, people who have abortions. I don't have to hate this. or that. I can just accept all human beings for who they are. So uh, C.S. Lewis to me is, um, is passe, I guess, except for his writing style. I'll continue to read him because I want to be able to write like that. But to me, that's the only reason he's relevant today. I mean, Carolyn, in, in many ways, your journey was sort of the opposite of Dan's. And you first encountered Lewis. I mean, obviously, you first encountered him through Narnia, but you first encountered some of his kind of apologetics um, arguments as an agnostic, a seeking agnostic. Do you think that you now approach his works differently as a Christian? Or do you think it was kind of as an agnostic that his works particularly spoke to you and drew you towards Christianity? Mm. Well, I shared Dan's appreciation of Lewis's writing ability. Um, I'm a writer as well, and I'm always left in awe of someone who can be both erudite and accessible, you know, and someone who can have a wonderful combination of logic and, and imagination. And I also think of someone who can have wisdom and wit and wonder still. I think those are really difficult threads to bring together. When I read Narnia as well, I did not read it as a theological story, of course, as a child and then even later growing up. Um, but I think it's a perfect example of how those kind of archetypes do speak to deep, deep things within ourselves. And, um, and what he and Tolkien saw is the good dreams that point towards the greater dreams, the, this, the, the things that are imprinted within us. I think Lewis remains relevant and continues to remain even more so to me as I hope to grow in my faith. I'm still... Um, really far beyond, far behind anyone else in many ways in that sense too. But the range of his works, I think, are really interesting. The range of his genres, you know, that he writes about science fiction and he writes about children's stories and he writes about uh, letters and prayer and he writes about grief. Um, there's so few authors with that kind of range and, you know, and he tackles the big questions. I think what's really interesting is he invites us to ask questions. He doesn't sweep them under the rug. Um, you know, there's an ethos he brings as having lost his own mother at a young age and going through two wars. And, you know, there is a genuine ethos that I think is still very, would be even more applicable to people today, young, young people reading him today in our world. I mean, our world has always got wars. Um, those never change. But what we're facing in our own world right now, I think he brings a great ethos to that. What I have appreciated about him even more so as I continue to read him, and by no means is he perfect, no author is, but he does encourage us to ask questions and, and the big questions and the difficult ones. But I think what's really probably for me most compelling about a writer like Lewis that will always remain relevant is he gets me to think about the questions God is asking of me, is asking of us. So that we're asking questions all the time, but we're also being asked questions. And I'm not saying that this is from a big, booming, cosmic voice, but I'm saying that within ourselves, that very first question in Genesis, you know, where are you? 
it's not that God went missing, it's we did. Um, who do you say I am? Um, who do you say I am? And being truthful with yourself. It's not about the person to the left or your right. It's you. Who do you, who do you say I am? Um, what consequences does that have for, therefore, how you make your decisions, how you shape your concept of, of reason and, and personal responsibility? And, and do you love me? So I'm struck by how I'm always sort of discomfited after I read him. <laughs> so he has this uncanny ability to kind of make me feel like I'm having a pint with him in a pub or a cuppa. And it's quite self-deprecating, as Dan said, and quite inviting to be with him. And yet he's also asking these hard questions of ourselves and, and pointing to how God is asking those of us as well. And how we answer them makes all the difference. And Carolyn, in your journey, do you think there was a specific C.S. Lewis quote or story or idea or book that really began to kind of unpick your agnosticism and move you towards Christianity? Obviously, it wasn't just C.S. Lewis that led you in that direction. I really was moved by his essays, his thoughts on prayer, particularly the weight of glory, because it forced me to recognize that everyone we meet is immortal. And if I don't believe in something beyond death, the great philosophical question, what happens to us when we die? Are we gone? Are we rot? Or is there something else? It's fine and good for me, but what of the person next to me? Um, love for both my God and myself, but also for my neighbor. And as he famously says, you know, there are no ordinary people. And uh, everybody you meet is, is immortal. And that changes our hands on how we interact with people, even when we're not in the mood. Um, it doesn't mean we're forced into fake joyousness. I think that's actually one of the most discrediting things of superficial su superficiality in any religion, but particularly Christianity. I think it makes, though, all the difference between friendship and fellowship. It's not the friendship of the ring. You know, it's the fellowship of the ring. And I think it is for a reason. It doesn't mean that you have to be delightful or you have to be um, superficial. You can kithe high and low in fellowship in a way that you can't with friendship because friendship will always stop at a certain point. And... I was moved by, more than moved, I was moved in heart and mind, but I was really um, challenged and, and changed by, by that way of thinking that forces you out of your self-referentiality, out of that abyss of solipsism, really, which eventually I believe it is, that we need to be saved from. Dan, I'd love to hear your thoughts in response to what Carolyn's just said there. But I would also, um, there was a line as I was rereading Mere Christianity this week, there was a line that struck me and I just thought, I really want to know what Dan thinks about this. And it's that where Lewis says, I'm not asking anyone to accept Christianity if his best reasoning tells him that the weight of the evidence goes against it. That's not the point at which faith comes in. Obviously, we've spoken a little bit about faith and reason, but I think I was particularly struck by him talking about the fact that he doesn't want anyone to believe in Christianity if the weight of evidence goes against it. And obviously, that's kind of your experience that you thought that evidence went against it and therefore you left Christianity. I mean, presumably what Lewis says there is incredibly relevant for you. Well, yes, the weight of the evidence does go against Christianity. I mean, that to me, that's very clear and to a lot of people and to... A lot of former ministers that I know and former believers that I know, uh, and even former non-believers. My wife is a third-generation non-religious person, and I can't think of anyone more kind, generous, moral, giving than her as a lifelong atheist. But um, faith—if if you're gonna—if if you have to accept something by faith, you're admitting that that cannot be accepted on its own merits. Faith is not knowledge. If it's knowledge, then you don't need faith. Faith is, is, is this attempt 
to go above and beyond what you know to be true and to commit yourself. Of course, there are many different usages of the word faith. But um, yes, uh, Lewis is not going to convince those readers who are convinced that the weight of evidence goes against Christianity, which it does. Christianity is not basically true. There are some truths in the Bible, obviously. There's some truths in the in the Bhagavad Gita, right? And it's interesting that it, when I'm reading the Bhagavad Gita, it's a lot different from somebody who actually believes Krishna is, exists. If somebody really believes Krishna is the God who governs their life, they're reading the Bhagavad Gita in a totally different way from the way I am reading the Bhagavad Gita. The same thing with me and Carolyn reading the Bible. As she actually believes that that God is a real person or a real being, obviously it's going to resonate differently to her and to C.S. Lewis than to someone like me and others who think it's either a myth or a metaphor or a literary device, or in some cases maybe even a lie or, or a misconception, right? Uh, it's certainly not true that this God exists. And if you, if you use reason and you analyze, when Jesus said you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself, he was quoting an Old Testament passage. And when you look at that Old Testament passage, loving your neighbor, if we use reason to know what that actually meant, loving your neighbor in that Old Testament passage meant loving your Hebrew neighbor. It did not mean loving the neighbors of the cities that you were going to conquer and kill and make slaves of them. No, it didn't mean loving them. It meant taking care of your own. And all religions do that. Every group of people takes care of their own kin, right? So love your neighbor as yourself did not mean, and if Jesus was God and he said, I and the Father are one, he must have known that that was what was meant with loving your neighbor. And maybe that's being a bit too rational and looking at that. And I think I, sh I applaud Christians like Carolyn who are taking that verse in a broader sense than what it was actually intended when Jesus said those words. So using reason, there's much to criticize about the Bible, but, but just using our basic human love and appreciation for each other as human beings, I think we can be charitable and attribute that our motives, all of our motives here are good. We, we want what is good. We want what is right. We want what is truthful and joyful. And I think C.S. Lewis did too. I don't think he was a hypocrite like a lot of pastors. I don't think he was a phony. I think he truly believed that this magical supernatural being existed and was governing our lives. And so uh, within that context, I have to say I appreciate his, his writing. And Carolyn, so obviously for Lewis, he did believe that there was evidence for Christianity. And that was your experience. You sort of thought there was evidence for your Christianity. I mean, is that one of the reasons why you would say that Lewis is still relevant today, not just for Christians, as, as Dan says, but, but also for a much wider audience? Yes. I mean, he's not just um, a pebble in a random pond, you know. I mean, there's billions of people worldwide that believe in a god or in something beyond themselves but also almost three billion that would i would identify themselves as christian or following a christian god and that's not an ad populum argument but it is an, it is a point to say that you know it's fairly arrogant to d dismiss everyone um in that bucket <laughs> you know as being um deluded or or wrong perhaps i mean i i mean when you think about it there's i mean very very famous people in that line and there's a long christian tradition and i think lewis talked about that you know that it, these other people he had been reading you know we can look from you know chesterton and mcdonald and herbert and whatnot up to you know gosh mother Teresa and martin luther king i mean my goodness there is uh, a strong intellectual background to this thinking faith, to this believing wisely. But uh, 
But I think the example of the Good Samaritan, which was one of Jesus's own teaching, shows um, how he was defining neighbor. And I don't think it was limited to just the Hebrew. And the book of Acts makes it very clear that this is something for everyone. That is, this is um, new wineskins. And so those old myths, they both point to the truth and they debunk the untruth, I think, very, and very clearly. And so I would beg to disagree that um, Christianity is, is wrong or irrelevant. Dan, do you have any final thoughts on C.S. Lewis as we come to the end of this podcast? I think I pretty much have said it all. You know, I'm no expert. I haven't read everything. Um, I guess one little tidbit here was his mistake in his famous trilemma, if you know what that was. Um, and you, you hear people like Josh McDowell repeat that. And Lewis wasn't the first to say it, I don't think. But when you're considering Jesus, you know, what was he like? He was either a liar or a lunatic or a lord. And those aren't the same words that Lewis used, but basically that's the idea. A man like that, you know, was he a lunatic? He could have been. Was he a liar? He could have been, right? Was he a lord? He could have been. But but he's ignoring others. It's not just three choices. And in my book, Godless, I point out that there's another L, and that's the word legend. If Jesus was a legend, whether he existed or not, and he may have, uh, there's you know, there's a, there is a probability that Jesus did exist as a real person. And there are good reasons to question that. But putting that aside, assuming that he did exist, <clears throat> the New Testament very likely could have been, as has happened many times in history, written by people who took that core story and then exaggerated it. And you can see the, the footprints of legendary growth, even just in the resurrection story, for example. The earliest ones are very simple. The later, the one, you know, the earliest one by Paul and then by Mark and then by Matthew. And as you go through the first century, those stories get bigger and bigger and grander and greater. And when you get to John, you have this huge, big, big story. Well, if you put them in order, you can see that there's a legendary growth in the telling of the story as the time passes. And so the, the picture that emerges in the New Testament may have been based on a real person, but there's a very high likelihood that that cartoon character in the New Testament was really the result of legendary embellishments. So it's not limited to just liar, lunatic, or lord. It could have also just been a legendary or even some people believe mythical story. Dan, just quickly on that. I mean, one of the one of the reasons he sort of uses that trilemma is to debunk the idea that Jesus was just a moral teacher. I guess he he's obviously had lots of people say, I don't believe this, this and this, but I do believe that Jesus was just a good moral teacher. I mean, would you say that he is he is able to just be a good moral teacher. He was not a good moral teacher. He said a couple of good things. Uh, you know, it would be surprising if he did not. But much of his advice was really what we would not call moral. He talked about, uh, he, he showed how compassionate he was by saying that there are some slaves that you should not beat as hard as other slaves. He talked about, uh, he said there are some men who should make themselves into eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. And some early Christian believers took a knife to themselves as a result of that verse, and they turned themselves into eunuchs because they were believing Jesus. He said, you should pluck out body parts. He said, you should hate, your, if you want to be my disciple, you should hate your mother and your father. He talked about a lake of fire where there would be torment. So there were some good teachings in there. Um, you know, in, in, the New, in the New Testament, uh, test all things and prove all things and hold fast to that which is good. You know, I think that's a good teaching. Um, 
But on balance, I think any one of us could have come up with a better moral system than Jesus did. He reflected the, the times that he lived in, right? And if you buy into this whole idea of this powerful, controlling, curse-hurling God who's going to punish you if you don't worship on the Sabbath, or if you worship idols, or if you, if you intermarry with somebody of the wrong religion, or, or though, if you buy into that, then you think, well, Jesus came to save us from all of that. Well, then you think he's a good moral teacher. But on balance, if you look at how relevant his moral teachings were to the world we live in today, there's not that much there. And certainly there's nothing there that any of us couldn't have come up with on, on our own with just a little bit of thinking. Carolyn, I don't know whether you've got any thoughts about that and also any thoughts, final thoughts about C.S. Lewis and why you think he is relevant. But just quickly, before you answer all of that, um, I also, I just wondered, the final lines of mere Christianity, um, I just wondered what your response was to them. It says, look for yourself and you'll find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. I just wondered whether that was your experience, Carolyn, of becoming a Christian. Uh, yes, yes, it, it was. And it continues to be. Certainly there are difficult things in the Bible and difficult things even spoken by by Jesus himself um, if, if we take those recordings. And yet, as Lewis says, that mere Christian at some point, you know, there are, and he says this in The Weight of Glory, there are very difficult things. And actually sometimes examining the things that are most terrible and most frightening lead us to the greatest insights as he discusses when he starts to think about glory. There, there is actually a lot of historical support for Jesus having been here. You know, Lee Strobel's case for Christ is fairly convic convicting, but we have more support for his um, life than we do for something like, um, than we do for the Odyssey, you know, which we teach in all of our freshman courses. So there's actually quite a bit of historical support. But I think what was so radical about Jesus is, um, yes, a lot of those stories he teaches in parable. And that doesn't mean that they can't appeal to faith, but I think it means that they're not limited, um, that they can't appeal to reason, but they're not limited to reason. And parable allows for interpretation and it allows for, and he was using those parables based on his life at the time, of course, and the audience and how they would have appealed. But they speak of things that are very still relevant to us today. And so it's easy saying to pluck out your eye. Um, I mean, if we are going to talk about literalisms, um, is he saying to cut off your hand if it offends you? I don't know. Perhaps me as a, as a trained reader, I tend not to believe that that's what he's asserting. I tend to think that it would be within the power of story that he came not as a theologian, but as a storyteller, as Madeline Langle says. And that's how we glean um, the truth and the morality um, from those stories. But but uh, what he is saying is radical. He's not political. He's not advocating any nationality. He's not advocating anything, even to Caesar. And he's operating in this space that's incredibly unique and liminal. And he calls us to answer for our own hearts. And that's a question that lays one open. And, uh, and his teachings do look at, yeah, grace is not fair. Grace trumps karma. I mean, I think if we operated according to karma, we'd all be in trouble. But... Uh, the stories of the wage being, you know, paid unfair wages, all those kind of things, they point to really how incredible something like grace is. And the fact that I agree with Lewis that if we really were to take the promises at their word and the glory and the gifts that we are promised, we wouldn't be able to bear the weight of them on our own backs, let alone for our neighbor. 
Thank you so much, both of you. I'm afraid that is all we've got time for today, but I would love to hear what everyone else thinks. Obviously, Carolyn thinks Lewis still is relevant. Dan, not so much, perhaps for Christians within their sort of Christian world, but but definitely not for non-Christians. But thank you so, so much, Dan Barker and Carolyn Weber. It's been an absolute pleasure and we do hope that you have enjoyed the discussion. We'd love to hear your thoughts and do check out our weekly C.S. Lewis podcast with Professor Alistair McGrath. Thank you for listening to Unbelievable with me, Ruth Jackson, and see you next time. Thank you for joining us on Unbelievable, the show that aims to get you thinking. We would love to hear your thoughts. Do get in touch. You can email us at unbelievable at premier.org.uk or leave a comment on our Twitter account at unbelievablefe or on the Premier Unbelievable Facebook page. And do check out our website, premierunbelievable.com. Registering there gives you access to all of our web content and our newsletter, through which you can gain access to hours of exclusive bonus content. That's premierunbelievable.com. And if you register or sign up for our newsletter there, you will automatically be entered into our competition to win a free book. If you enjoy listening to Unbelievable, please do consider rating and reviewing it on your podcast platform. Thank you for listening and see you next week.